One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. The Telegraph, the Telegraph. podcasts. Let's say I had diabetes or rheumatoid arthritis. That's a chronic condition. I'll have relapses and remissions. For me, that's what serious drug dependency is. Hello, my name's Bryony Gordon, and I want to welcome you to this special series of Mad World. And I say special series because it covers a subject I know all too well. Addiction. Addiction, recovery and mental health go hand in hand. And as many of you may know, it's a journey I've been on and I'm still on. So for this year's Addiction Awareness Week, the Mad World team have joined forces with the amazing charities Action on Addiction and the Forward Trust to bring you a series of honest conversations about addiction, be that to alcohol, drugs, gambling or something else. We're slowly breaking down the stigma of discussing mental health, but addiction still sadly remains taboo, even though we will all know someone who's been touched by it which means I'm especially grateful to my guests on this series for having the courage to speak to me. On Mad World, we believe that hearing people's personal experience of mental health is so important in battling stigma. But it's also important to take a look at how practically we can improve the system of getting treatment for those mental illnesses. So today, we're going to hear from the woman who was tasked by the government to look at the way we handle drug addiction in this country. She's Professor Dame Carol Black, and she is on the most remarkable mission to change the way we treat drug addicts in this country. Dame Carol. Do you insist people call you no, Dame I Carol? No, no, call me Carol. I'm going to call you Dame Carol, because it just, <laughs> it befits you. Welcome to Mad World. Thank you Thank so you. much for coming in. The question we ask all of our guests, the first question is, how are you really right now? I'm pretty good right now because I'm going away for a weekend with lots of my mates. Going to Woodstock. In Oxfordshire? Yes. How lovely. On a medical pilgrimage. Can we? I need to know about <laughs> this medical pilgrimage. It's, it's a group of medics. Once a year, we would choose a place in the country, usually associated with a university, and we would spend part of the time learning about a particular condition or new developments, and then just part of the time enjoying each other's company. You know, all, medics love to get together and talk medicine. So tell us about you, because we have a lot of high profile people on the podcast, a lot of household names, and you are, you were a dame. Can you tell us a bit about your background and your story? 
My background, working class family in the Midlands, born in a village near Leicester, fortunate enough to go to a grammar school. Went then to Bristol University, got it all wrong to start with, read history, realised quite early on that I was in the wrong subject, wanted to do medicine, had a journey to sort of change to medicine, started medicine at the age of 25, loved it, really survived very well in medicine. It was, it's just been a wonderful career, became president of the Royal College of Physicians and then the government's uh, national director for health and work. And that took me to working on addiction. Mm-hmm. Done all sorts of exciting and interesting things. Now chair the British Library and the Centre for Aging Better. We need a whole Dame Carol Black series <laughs> of Mad World to talk to you about ageing better, to talk to you about... All, I mean, because it's... Honestly, it's it's an incredible career. So you're a doctor. I'm a medic, yes. You're a medic. Okay. So as well as a Dame, a doctor. And the reason you have come to talk to us today is because the government put you in charge of its review on drugs. Indeed. Two and a bit years ago, Sajid Javid, when Home Secretary... Um, started it off with phase one of this review, which was about supply and demand, and then part two, which was then commissioned by the Department of Health and Social Care, is about treatment and recovery. So it's in two parts, and the second part published July 2021. All this week, we've been having these conversations with people who have lived experience of addiction, be it their own addiction or their mother's addiction. And, you know, the question I get asked most as someone in recovery is, how did you get well? And the truth is, I got well because I am a white middle class person who has access to funds so I could go to private rehab. There's not much out there in terms of treatment on the NHS for people who are drug addicts. Your report says again and again and again and again and again and again and again that the outcomes for people in the most deprived areas of the country are terrible when it comes to drugs. So the reason we wanted you in is A, to talk about this, but also to give people an idea of what there is out there and what you would like to see and what you have suggested to the government should happen. So I said very clearly in the review, part two, that the system's broken and wanting and the government needs to do something about it immediately. I mean, the sequence of events has been over the last 10 years, there has been a gradual reduction in the funding to local authorities to support drug dependency and alcohol dependency. So the amount of available resource, which means the quality and quantity of service, has diminished. But at the same time, there's been an influx, a ready influx of heroin, cocaine, and lots of other new drugs coming in, flooding the market. Pretty pure substances and a lot of other drugs easily to obtain in the post, all kinds of ways. You don't have to buy them on the street corner. And we now have a situation of 300,000 heroin and crack dependent individuals who really need 
urgent help. They live mainly, as you'd say, in our most deprived areas. Not entirely, but deprivation, poverty maps very closely to serious drug taking and also to homicide. 50% of homicides are drug related. About a half of serious acquisitive crime is related to people who are taking drugs. And awfully, a third of our prison places are taken up by people who are there because of drugs. We have to change that. So my review part two is telling the government what to do about it. Okay. This is an issue that, you know, I suspect we'll still be debating in decades to come, sadly. But you touched on it there, that a third of our prison population are people there because of drugs. And and what the sort of gist I got from the report was that we are essentially criminalising people who are desperately unwell. We could divert many more people than we do. I mean, I think what the courts have been doing increasingly, if you look at the statistics, is instead of enabling people to be diverted into treatment, recovery and good probation, because they've not been available, the courts have taken the option to give individuals who I might describe as sad and not bad and they've sent them back into prison, and they're on hamster wheels. So many of these people, many that I spoke to in prison, told me this was their 20th admission to prison. I mean, every time they come out, they've not had a restorative experience in prison. On the contrary, they might have been introduced to new drugs. It's not been a worthwhile experience. They often come out on a Friday afternoon. Mm -hmm. Their benefits not sorted out their ongoing drug treatment not sorted out, no money, nowhere to live, back to living on the street, back to heroin addiction, or for many women, which is really upsetting to me, prostitution, and back onto heroin. So we have to do better than that. I mean, it's treating people really not quite as human beings. Yeah. You mentioned there that you would describe these people as sad, not bad. And yet there is a very kind of binary view often in terms of drugs and alcohol use. And unfortunately, a lot of people think that people that use drugs are just bad people. I know they do. I'd love to educate them uh, and show them and, and whether they would look at the figures that if you take the hardcore of people who are dependent on heroin and crack They come from often very disturbed backgrounds, from very poor backgrounds. They've had trauma in their childhood. They have none of the advantages of a good education, none of the protective factors, either at school or out of school, you know, in in youth clubs. And in fact, in the last 10 years, such has been the cuts to local authorities, the protective factors that were there have gone. So I would say to those people, there are exceptions, of course there are, but for most people who are on serious, hard-line drugs, there is a story, and we would be so much better to treat individuals with a drug dependency as having a chronic health condition, giving them parity with somebody who has another chronic condition. Let's say I had diabetes or rheumatoid arthritis, that's a chronic condition. I'll have relapses and remissions. For me, that's what serious drug dependency is. And if we could get our heads around that, start to treat it like that, get the right treatment and recovery in place, 
there'll be less serious crime. There will be a much more stable society. You say in the report that for every one pound you spend on treatment, you reap back four pounds. So it's it's actually just a sound financial investment, basically. Yeah, I mean, just think at the moment, the country spends 19.2 billion pounds a year on the whole problem of drug dependency in prison places, in the criminal justice system, in courts, in the benefits system, in the health system, in social care. You name it, that money every year adds up to £19.2 billion. I've merely asked over five years for £1.8 I mean, it, it isn't a lot of money over five years. Now, what has the response to that been? We've got the spending review coming up, obviously. It's a very, very good question. And of course, I don't really know the answer to that. I know that the spending review tends to deal or does deal with individual departments. So the Treasury dealing with health or the Treasury dealing with the Ministry of Justice. So I'm very cautious to say to you that I am hopeful But on the other hand, I'm hopeful because the Prime Minister has actually taken this very seriously and six departments of state who I needed to be in there supporting this agenda are behind it. I've never seen such government interest in this topic. They've really appreciated the review. They accept it, I think. It's a matter, can we get the money to do it? So that's an interesting thing because you you often hear that this government, the Conservative government, have come in times of austerity and et cetera, et cetera. But they are genuinely, the Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, is invested in it. Yes, and I have met him and talked to him about it, you know, straight face to face. And also the Home Secretary, the Secretary of State in the other department, they understand what this is really about. Now, of course, we still need the Treasury to come up with the money. And I won't know, will I, till the end of October, whether there is going to be support. But for the next three years, it wouldn't be a huge amount of money. It's a three-year spending review. So, no, of course, the problem, you know, I mean, this was a problem before the coronavirus pandemic came, but it's a bigger problem now. Mm. I mean, it looks, although I don't think the stats have been published yet, it looks as if during the pandemic we have got more drug deaths than the year before and people might say, well, they may be due to drug-dependent people dying of COVID. doesn't look as if it's going to be like that. Okay. But it is my understanding that last in the year 2020, more people under 50 died because of drugs than they did because of COVID. Yeah, So in Scotland, they've essentially recently decriminalised Class A drugs. They won't say that out loud, but they... No, certainly not. (laughs) The government wouldn't say that. I'm saying that. That is my quote. But they are giving the police the power of sort of discretion, essentially, to deal with people who are found with hard drugs. Do you think that's something that would ever happen elsewhere in the country? I don't think under this present government that it would happen here at the moment. No, no. I mean, that would be, if you ask me straight, and I'm giving you a straight answer, no, I I don't think so. I don't think that would happen. But I think there's so much 
that you can do to enable people who've got that problem to get help and support. And we just don't do any of it at the moment, or it's getting less all the time. Our treatment and recovery services are really on their knees. So the, the, the treatment and recovery services aren't run by the NHS? No, they're not. In 2013, with the Lansley reforms, the delivery of addiction services went to the local authorities, okay. although they have to work with the NHS for mental health services and trauma-informed or if you've got hepatitis C. I mean, so theoretically, there should be a good combination. But what has happened year on year since 2013 is the public health grant through which the money goes to the local authorities has been reduced year on year and the thing that then the local authorities have taken that money from has been drug and alcohol services because if you think about it local councils are elected by local people local people would rather see their money go I don't know to old people or Mm -hmm. children they're not going to vote to give their money that money to drug and addiction services. So I've said in my report, we need money, but we need it to be ring-fenced. I wouldn't just give money to local authorities. I would ring-fence it. I want proper commissioning standards so you can't just deliver any old service, which is, at the moment, there's no commissioning standards. So what's commissioned in Blackpool could be quite different from what's commissioned in Cornwall. That's ridiculous. We need a proper local outcome framework. We need proper commissioning standards and we need a proper needs assessment. That all sounds quite technical and boring in some ways, but you've got to get some order into this system and a service across the country that is the same for somebody living in Newcastle as living in London. It isn't like that. It's, it's a postcode lottery. Mm-hmm. So what are your other recommendations? So my recommendations really in, in the short are one to have proper central leadership. So they've already created a, a central drugs unit. It's placed in the Home Office at the moment with, I said, a responsible minister, and we've got one, Kit Malthouse, reporting annually to Parliament using the National Outcomes Framework to which they would report that locally it it will now be, if we get the money, a properly commissioned service where you have to provide all the different modalities of treatment, which is so often not done. I mean, there are some places where we don't have a consultant psychologist. We can't do CBT. And so... A lot of my report is about the mechanisms of getting a high-quality service for people and then a proper recovery system because really recovery needs to be done with people who've been on this journey. Recovery can't be done by, you know, medics like me. This needs to be done by people who've been in addiction, who know what it's like, but we don't pay them properly. And we don't respect them very well. I want that to change. I want proper housing to be available. How can you get off heroin if you live in a house with somebody shooting it? You can't. And then so many drug-dependent people told me they wanted something meaningful to do. They wanted something worth living for. So I think you've got to, at least as part of this treatment service be enabling people to get back towards the world of work. Mm. So that's why I've called it a whole system. 
it isn't just about will you give somebody methadone and, and then move them off methadone or buprenorphine or whatever you're going to use. It's, it's about putting the person at the centre and saying what do I need to provide for this individual to help them on their journey of recovery. So that's really what the report is about. There's a lot in there about the criminal justice system, about what we should do about diversion and treatment after prison. There's quite a bit in there about young people. There's been a 40% increase in drug taking in children and young people in the last eight years. And there's quite a bit in the report about a much, much better workforce. And then one of the most difficult areas is what do you do about recreational drugs? Okay, so let's And we don't know. We basically don't know. You know, most people who take cocaine on a Saturday night or a Friday night don't think of themselves as addicted. Mm -hmm. You know, if, if, if it's just at that level, so to speak, they think that's normal, but they drive the trade... And it's two billion a year that the drug dealers get out of recreational drugs. So that means it drives a supply chain. That means it attracts young people into county lines. It's a sort of vicious circle. But we know that if you do an advertising campaign, it doesn't work. It's been done in many countries. You can't just sort of, you know, it's a bit like stop smoking because it gives you lung cancer. We don't yet know. What would, if anything, persuade somebody who takes recreational cocaine to think, well, overall, I'm not really serving children and society very well? We don't know. The evidence base isn't there. But it's interesting, the cocaine issue, because, and I say this as someone who, you know, I would recreate, I mean, I would, it became more than recreational in the end, but, you know, the whole thing feeds itself, doesn't it? Cocaine, I think, is a, is a huge drug because it's certain, I'm talking kind of bluntly here, it sobers you up and it enables you to carry on drinking, right? Mm-hmm. So it's a, it's a huge drug in binge drinking. So the whole thing, you know, we've got this legal drug, which is perfectly available and to some people, and some people, let's let's you know, let's speak. Some people are very responsible with their drinking. Many people, most people, probably are responsible, but there's still a huge section of society who are not. And so, you know, for me, that was, and I know for a lot of people, a lot of friends in recovery, the cocaine use was driven by by the alcohol. Yes. Mm. Mm. So it's a sort of huge mammoth thing, and and that's why a lot of people have said to me, "Why did the government ask me just to look at drugs?" Because mm. really. To be frank, so many people who take drugs also have got a problem with alcohol. But, of course, the commissioning of treatment services is together. So my my hope is that if we get money for this, then it will, of course, go into the treatment services, which is for both. And I accept that alcohol is just as dangerous. And here we have a legal drug, which is dangerous. So you'd say that alcohol is as dangerous as heroin? Yeah, it's different, but, you know, if you look at the number of deaths it causes and the real physical harm it causes, it's it's another drug. Mm. It's really good to hear you say that because it's our culture is so entrenched, you know, it's, it's soaked in I alcohol. You know. I know, and, and I think probably during the pandemic, people have, have, have drunk more. Mm.
you found the government to be receptive to your ideas. Realistically, what do you see the picture looking like in five years, ten years? Um, realistically, do I expect to get all that was being asked for in the review? No. You know, it would be wonderful if they did. But if I had to design it to try and see could I, could I really see progress, I would say if we get a certain amount of resource, I would do the whole system approach. I wouldn't give a bit of money here and a bit of money there. I would try and do the proper treatment, recovery, housing work, enveloping this person in the support they need, I would do it in the areas that need levelling up. I would take it to the worst areas and then I would measure it very carefully and really look and see over the next three years, can we make a difference to people's lives? I believe we can. I believe, you know, the DWP has just had three years of trials of a thing called individual placement support. It's really a case-managed approach to helping people in drug treatment who want to get into work. It's quite expensive, but the results look excellent. And so I am hopeful that if we really got our heads around doing this thing properly, we got the relevant departments together all rowing in the same direction, then we could really pilot this properly and then assuming and hoping that we could make a difference to people's lives, we could roll it out. I mean, we we have, as you probably know, a very diminished inpatient. I, I don't know whether you, yeah. you had inpatient care. No, I didn't. But we've had so much taken out of inpatient detoxification and rehabilitation that needs to go back in there mm-hmm. because for some people that is the only way you're going to really help them. Well, they need it as well. I mean, it's physically dangerous not to be Uh, detoxed. And you must be detoxed in in a really competent unit. And so I asked in my review that there be a proper review of inpatient services because their quality varies across the country again. And we know that. And it's as if, you know, would you treat a woman with breast cancer the way we treat a woman with heroin addiction? But the simple answer to that is no. You know, there is such a moral judgment attached Mm. to addiction, which, and I don't know how that goes. I mean, I guess it goes by us having conversations like this and carrying on having them, you know. And I think it goes, if you start to give people a really good service, if you start to talk about it, think about mental health where we were, well, even 10 years ago, pushed under the carpet, never talked about in the workplace. None of us could say we needed, you know, some help because we were depressed or anxious or really stressed. That is changing. Mm. We are now much more willing to talk about mental health and all that goes with it. We've really got to get to the point. And we don't have any advocates. I mean... You know, for most other conditions, you have patient groups, you have professional groups who are banging on the door of government. Who bangs on the government's door for those who are addicted? Well, I've been banging, but we don't have a patient organisation for those who are addicted to heroin, do we? And so it's how do we start to give this condition the same parity and the same if you like, influence 
and stop being judgmental. And you mentioned, you know, mental health. Obviously, the conversations about that have changed. I mean, there's still a long way to go on that. But to me, addiction is absolutely a mental illness. And often it's a mental illness on top of another mental illness. You know, it's, as you say, it's a mental illness on top of a trauma. It's a, it's, it's a faulty coping mechanism. And, you know, it's, it's a way of alleviating pain. You mentioned that there is a specific minister, Kit Malthouse, who is in the home office. So, But it's still then seen that's a criminal justice issue rather than being in the Department of Health. But in fairness to Kit, who I think really understands the whole issue, he probably at the moment is the minister who knows more about drugs than anyone else. And I personally am very comfortable that at the moment he's the minister. I don't see why in the future he couldn't be a minister in health Mm. or even a minister... In another department, it just needs a minister who is prepared to give it the time and has really got the interest. And I would say for the moment, he's prepared to give it the time and does have the interest. But the Department of Health needs to play its very full part. And, and And I think that they are prepared to do that. It's not in the past been high on their agenda. It's higher now, and I think it absolutely has the commitment of the Secretary of State. The current Secretary? What about the last Secretary of State? The last Secretary of State actually was very supportive of what we were doing, but this Secretary of State was then the Home Secretary and started this whole thing off. Sajid Javid. So Sajid started the the first part of the report, which was a market review of supply. So he's And he's ending it. We can talk about politicians all we like, you know. We can talk about, you know, all of these experts and drugs. But you were saying, before we started recording, that the most important people for you in this review to talk to were people with lived experience. Can you talk a bit more about that? Well, yes, I mean, if you're going to try and design a system and advise policy, you've really got to understand what it is the person who has got the drug dependency thinks would help them. I mean, you may have your own ideas, but constantly, the more I listened to people and their stories, the first thing that came out so clearly is what you've already said was mental health, was trauma. And I'll keep taking the drug until I've dealt with my trauma, I heard so many times. So if there's not proper mental health and support, it was hearing what people told me about trying to cope with an addiction and living in appalling circumstances. You can't hold down a job if you're living on the streets. Mm. You know, you need to hear the things that would make a difference. And the other thing I learnt, just like with every other chronic condition, some people need two years to recover. Quite frankly, some people need five, and some stay in recovery, perhaps never completely recovered. You need to go the journey that the person can go at the speed they can go, because that's what we do. You know, if you had insulin-dependent diabetes, I wouldn't be berating you every minute of the day if your control wasn't absolutely perfect. I'd be trying to help you to get to better control. And we have to accept that addiction will relapse and remit, 
and you hope you get to the point where it's remitted and the person is stable. Mm. So I think it's really hearing the messages. The other thing I learnt was that there are some very vulnerable groups in addiction that we don't deal with, well, ethnic minority groups, where we haven't got the right workers in addiction who understand the culture Mm -hmm. of some societies. And then the LGBT community Mm -hmm. and chemsex, people with learning disabilities... And I heard from all of those groups about they do have special needs and really, frankly, most treatment programmes just are nowhere near dealing with with those. So you can't meet every need of a patient or a person in addiction, but you jolly well need to listen carefully. And so I tried to build the review from the individual and then take it out to the system because even if you've listened to the individual the thing you've got to change and do it well is the system Mm. and you've got to get the right systems in place the right accountability of the local authorities who is going to make them accountable how are you going to know whether you're getting a good service and then you've got to get the money going to the right place so it means you really start with the person and get out to the system that needs to be put in place. That's what I've tried to do. I think we need one of you in every hospital and doctor's surgery and, you know, oh, you're just amazing. Tell me, um, you don't have to answer this question, but I just thought I'd ask, you know, addiction is something that does touch a lot of people. Have you, do you know people that have suffered from it? Yes, I do. Okay. Yes, I do. Not actually in my direct family, but, you know, in friends' families. And I've seen just what it can do. Yeah. And just to sort of, in summary, if there's someone listening who's still sees addiction as, you know, it's a moral failure rather than an illness, tell me, just sum up, what the impact of properly treating addiction has on the rest of society. So if there's not the demand for drugs, so if you have given people who are addicted really a good chance of good treatment, ongoing treatment, recovery, we will have less murders. Homicide will go down. We will have far less serious acquisitive crime because people, you you know, are committing crime because they're desperate Mm -hmm. for the drug. And we will certainly not need so many prison places. I mean, we're building prisons at the moment, aren't we? Mm. So for society, you won't have environments where, and and we all see it, you go into certain areas of the country where it's scattered with needles, where you know that a whole lot of drug taking is happening, where people don't feel safe. And we can make a difference. It's not an impossible problem. There's very good evidence about what works in treatment and recovery. And there's also very good evidence that if you do it well, death from drugs and crime is decreased. So if people still want to think of it as a moral weakness, if for no other reason that we would reduce crime, we'd have a safer society and we would have less children drawn into county lines and addiction. They're very good reasons for supporting what I've written. Yeah. Tell me, if there's someone listening right now who is desperate and would like to get help, 
as someone who has spent so long, and this might perhaps be an impossible question to answer, but navigating the the sort of landscape of, of what is there, what would your advice be to someone for how to get help right now? I think you would have to really, if if you were desperate, if you were desperate, I think you'd have to go to casualty, wouldn't you? Mm-hmm. I mean, if it's life-threatening and you're prepared to do that. If you've got any connection with any of the charities that that support this. I mean, I can't tell you there's a wonderful number yeah. to ring that's going to give you the answer. But I think in most sort of areas, there will be charities that are really available. I don't know, and you probably would know this better than I, would you get a good response if you phoned the AA or if you phoned, you know, one of the drug sites or if you phoned the Samaritans? I mean, tragic, isn't it? That, that, that It's very difficult to answer that question. It's really difficult because I can't tell you that there's a good recovery service. You know, wouldn't it be wonderful if, if we had a recovery service such mm. that we knew in every area who are the people who've been through this journey, the peer workers that we support properly. Um, but there's a lot of really good work going on in, in peer workers in recovery with a man called Ed Day, who is the UK recovery champion. He works in Birmingham and he's really trying to get the community together. So I, I think it's a really good time to bring about a change. I just so hope the government does something because if they don't, we will just have more deaths and more children taking drugs. And I, I've seen too much to think that this is... Uh, and, of course, I didn't in my review. I wish I'd had time, but it would have been too much to do. It's, it's very related to poverty. So, you know, if, if you've got no protective factors in your life, I mean, I, I sort of think of my own upbringing, which is a very working-class family. We were poor, but everybody in the family worked. Mm. Do you know that that sort of protection of, of a wage did come in each week? And although, you know, we had protein once a week, you know, and things like that, but it was okay because the protective factors were there. Mm. I went to school every day. And it's it's those things that that worry me. And, you know, I don't know whether levelling up is going to... A lot of levelling up is about economics, isn't it, mm. at the moment? Anyway, they've given me... <laughs> maybe, I don't... I hope they won't regret it. They've given me a contract to uh, stay with them and keep their feet to the fire. So I'm going to keep their feet to the fire. Thank you so much, Dame Carol. You're a wonder. Before you go, please follow Mad World on your podcast app to make sure you never miss an episode. And if you feel like it, leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. I love to read what you think about the shows and see your guest suggestions too. The Telegraph also let me loose in the paper. So if you'd like to hear more from me, head to telegraph.co.uk forward slash madworld and you can get your first 30 days access to the website completely free. This series was produced by the legendary Louisa Wells and Giles Gear. And if you've been affected by anything we've talked about in our podcast today, the following organisations offer free and confidential support. 
Action on Addiction, who along with the Forward Trust have helped us put together this series, are a UK charity providing support to people who need rehab, as well as a wealth of resources for those battling addiction issues. They can be found at www.actiononaddiction.org.uk. For honest information about drugs and help and advice in the UK, head to www.talktofrank.com or call 0300 123 6600. Wearewithyou.org.uk are a charity who offer free confidential support to people in England and Scotland who have issues with drugs and alcohol. For information in Northern Ireland, go to services.drugsandalcoholni.info. In Wales, you can contact Dan247 at dan247.org.uk. If you're a child of an alcoholic, you can get advice and support from NACOA for free on 0800 358 3456. And importantly, please remember this, you are not alone. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello? Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm-hmm. 